Well, welcome back, everyone, to the Whitetail Theories podcast. Today on the mic, we have special guest Ben Rhodes. What's going on, Ben? Doing good, Torn. How about you, man? Hanging in there, hanging in there. It's been a busy day. This is uh, my second podcast of the day. Uh, oh, wow. So, yeah, between that and some other things, it's been busy. But this podcast for our listeners is kind of the wrap-up. This is our final uh, Deer Camp Tour podcast. And Ben and I have been trying to hook up here for a while. And mm-hmm. either due to various schedule conflicts and so on, uh, we haven't been able to link up until now and get this podcast recorded. So the plan is to do a recap and then kind of have Ben give insights into potentially hunting uh, Canada if you're coming from the lower 48 or maybe uh, a different province in Canada for our listeners in Canada. So that's where we're going to kind of take this podcast. So before we get rolling, Ben, why don't you give us an introduction of kind of who you are, how you got into hunting, that whole deal? Yeah, yeah, sure thing. Uh, well, like you said, my name is Ben Rhodes. Uh, I live here in northern Alabama. I'm around the uh, Athens, Huntsville area. Uh, I'm 26. I've been hunting pretty much my whole life. Uh, it's kind of ingrained uh, in me from, you know, just being around my family. It's something my family's always done, my grandparents, uh, my dad, and even my father-in-law. Um, you know, every, it, it's, it's kind of instilled in you in a, in a young age here. Uh, but, um, I hunt pretty much here in North Alabama and then I, I hunt in, uh, uh, Western Alabama around Livingston. Uh, that place is kind of ate up hogs right now. Uh, but you know, my, my, the, the three things that I primarily hunt are whitetail hogs and, uh, turkeys. Um, I pretty much bow hunt, rifle hunt. Uh, I actually just got into bow hunting. I, I've been rifle hunting all my life, but I didn't start bow hunting until about two years ago. And that's been a big uh, game changer for me. Uh, it's a lot more difficult. Uh, that's for sure. I, I've had a lot of growing pains with that, but it's been a really fun experience. It's, it's been a lot different. Let's, um, let's talk about that a little bit. Uh, so mm-hmm. typically I would say in, in your traditional standard um, hunting scenarios, most people get into bow hunting earlier in life. What, uh, what happened that you got into it a little bit later? Well, uh, there, there was nothing, um, there was no reason I didn't bow hunt. Uh, that's just kind of how my dad, uh, hunted his whole life. He, you know, he rifle hunted and, uh, he's actually a really big, and my family has always been really big into still hunting. Uh, so, you know, you're on the ground the entire time. You're not in a stand or shooting house. Um, you're a little bit mobile. Um, you don't stay in one place the entire time you're hunting. Sometimes you'll, you'll move around more frequently or less frequently than other times. And the factors that go into that are, you know, weather is a big thing. And when I, when I say weather, I, I really mean sound, right? Mm-hmm. So if it's really dry, uh, down here and the leaves are on the ground, then you don't really get to move, uh, all that much. You need to stay a little bit more still and it takes you a lot longer to move and, uh, typically was still hunting, at least how I was taught and how my dad's always done it. You know, you can move, uh, a hundred yards, you know, and it might take you an hour, uh, to, to travel that distance. Uh, but it's, it's never been a, it's never been a, a thing, you know, I, I didn't not want to bow hunt. It's just that's how we always hunted. 
me growing up and and I played uh, sports all my life and I played in high school and I played in college. So that took up a lot of my time. So uh, I didn't always get to hunt, you know, as much as I wanted to. It was kind of like uh, when the opportunity presented itself, that's whenever, you know, we jumped on it and we went and hunted and hunted hard and uh, gave myself the best opportunity, I guess, with a rifle. Um, But uh, yeah, here recently, I got into it about two years ago. You know, I'm, I'm done with school. I'm just working now. And, uh, you know, most of my free time goes into, uh, family. I, I'm, I'm in graduate school, but, you know, that's not a, a hobby of mine, I guess, as, as much uh-huh. as hunting is, you know, so pretty much all my free time, I, I'll, I pretty much spend hunting. Um, so, but I got into the bow hunting. Uh, I always wanted to do it. I just, you know, I, I didn't have money to buy a bow. I didn't. I had some uh, hand-me-down bows uh, that I used in the past, but this is the first time I got to, you know, get the gear that I wanted to get and set up. And uh, the, the properties that I hunt now around here, uh, we've got them set up for bow hunting, and I got a climber and all that, all that good stuff. So uh, I have the I have the means to do it now. Uh, the skill, though, I do not have it to do it. I, I I've been hunting for about uh, a year and a half now with my bow. I, I haven't hunted. Uh, as much as I'd like to this year, I've been extra busy, but, um, I've gone a full year and a half without, uh, harvesting a deer with my bow. Um, I, I'd say the majority of that is I kind of have two sticklers, um, that I, I typically don't shoot, uh, you know, a, a younger buck and I, and I don't shoot a, a doe with a, a year, a yearling or a fawn. Mm-hmm. Uh, those are my t- two bugaboos, but honestly, I, I've been hunting long enough now. Uh, that I, I might be over that fact to try and get my first one with a bow under my belt. Right, right. Uh, so I'm feeling dangerous right now. <laughs> so uh, what are some of the, the trials and tribulations that you've been going through? Uh, why do you think that you haven't found success so far? Um, well, that's a that's a good question. It's been a lot of things, man. Um, it's been spot selection, you know, uh, thinking that I'm in an okay spot uh with the wind and turns out uh you know when they have to get as close as they do you know and, and I and I'll say this too you know where we hunt too I, I know there's some guys all around the country that you know the, the areas that you're hunting you know you have 50 60 yards at your disposal and I you know we we have a lot closer range around here we have a lot of a lot of timber and terrain that you know you got to get a little bit closer and, and too i mean like i i haven't really pushed trying to get too comfortable with shooting at those distances just because there's not too many opportunities or places that i hunt that mm-hmm. uh, i would i would need to take a shot like that so i'm in the 30 40 range um and but anyway um you know my shot selections or i guess my my struggles um a, a lot of it's been movement um you know I've rifle hunted on the ground uh, a lot of my life, and uh, there's 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 just something about instead of being at fifty, sixty, or a hundred yards, uh, you know, getting in that thirty, forty range, man, you you have to be that much more still. And and typically how I do it, you know, rifle hunting is when a deer's moving or a deer's head down, you know, you can move, I think, or at least I've been able to just really slow, no quick movements. You just take it real easy and make whatever movements you need to slow, whether it's keeping your rifle up or whatever. 
But man, with a bow, I don't know if it's because you're elevated or if it's because it's just so much closer. The deer are so much more attentive to any type of movement. And and also, too, it it might be the the areas that I've hunted. One thing I've learned about uh, bow hunting is opening, you know, hunting over a field. Uh, Deer are that much more on edge, you know, when they're in open spaces. Uh, And I found that if you get more in the thicker stuff or closer to bedding areas, then you can get a much more relaxed or uh, comfortable deer, um, you know, that's not too worried about all the movements and, and really attentive to smells or things that they hear. Um, so that that's one thing that I've learned that's been beneficial. You know, it's something I didn't know before, but, oh, man, I could go on for hours just talking about things I've done to screw up. Yeah. Well, I mean, basically what you just described there i've seen that a lot whether within people that i've taken out or uh just talking with people especially when they're relatively new coming from a gun to the bow is uh there's a lot of hiccups just even setting up on that shot so the movement from pulling from whether your bow's on the hanger or the bow's in your hand and positioning yourself into a situation where you can draw and shoot uh, a lot of people get busted with that and, and have a hard time reading the, the deer's body language, understanding when, when they're actually calm versus like they're like, if you ever see where like you go to move on a deer and it, the deer seems calm, but they're kind of like in that in-between stage where they're still able to take in their surroundings. They're not necessarily like totally <laughs> cool. Oh, Absolutely. I, I've been, I've been tried to, I, I've been tricked by a deer or, uh, you know, a deer tried to trick me one time. I, I was on the edge of a field, uh, and, uh, a deer was feeding right in front of me and I had the sun at my back and it was a spike. So I, I, you know, I didn't even have my bow pulled up, but I could see his eyes and I could see where he's looking and he stuck his head down to the ground and looked straight up at me. I know he could see me and he was looking right at me, but he wasn't feeding. He just stuck his head down and looked up at me and was just waiting for me to move, to catch me. I mean, the, the awareness of them is ridiculous. They, I mean, like, uh, it's incredible. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So, uh, like you said, we could probably talk about just the bow hunting aspect. Uh <laughs> as its own separate podcast, but I want to kind of transition here and talk about your Canada hunt. But before we get there, uh, I wanted to ask you, did you, so was Canada your first kind of out of state hunt or did you start traveling out of state before that? Oh no, this has been the first one and it was a trip for sure. Uh, I, I had, uh, I had hoped, uh, to go on a trip to Colorado, uh, this past year, but um, I had a vacation lined up exactly the week that I had planned on going or my, my buddies, you know, we talked about going together. Uh, and so that didn't happen. And, and our, uh, I bet, you know, I didn't commit to the hunt in Colorado early enough and they found somebody else. And then our vacation got pushed because of COVID. So, oh. so I wish I'd, a, I wish I'd have stuck to it, but, uh, this yeah. next year I, I'd like to go to Colorado, uh, or Kentucky or, uh, maybe even, uh, uh, what was it? Missouri. Um, that's just, uh, through friends that have done it before and have had, uh, a good time, uh, sure. seen a lot of deer that they know some spots, but, but yeah, the, the, the Canada hunt was, was definitely the first time out of state and it was, 
It was way out of state. Yeah, I'll say. So how did this kind of uh, uh, materialize? What made you want to go to Canada? <clears throat> so I'd always, I mean, it, it wasn't my idea. Uh, my father-in-law has actually been going there since uh, 91 uh, to the same outfitter, to the same spot uh, in the same area uh, ever since 91. The only time he didn't go was uh, whenever COVID came and, you know, we, we couldn't cross the border. Uh, and he invited me to go on this trip. And uh, I, I've been I've been ready and waiting to go out of state uh, for a little while now, and I thought it was a good opportunity, and uh, it, it was an awesome experience. Yeah, I I'm sure I'm sure, and uh, this was Saskatchewan, correct? Yeah, yeah, it was in a weak Saskatchewan uh, in the uh, Porcupine Provincial Forest. Gotcha, gotcha. All right, so let's let's kind of take a step back here. So when and and in today's world, I think we're going to be able to pull some good information from your experience with COVID sure. and everything that's going on. What did you have to do to prepare to cross the border? Because I know from what <laughs> I understand, it's like really wishy-washy still on whether you can get across. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's that's something, too, that, uh, you know, my father-in-law has been several, several years, but it was another thing that. It was it was going to be different than how he had uh, done it in the past. Um, so we had to obviously have to have vaccinations. Um, we also had to you know provide the negative test within forty eight hours of crossing the border. Um, but I guess before that, uh, so so we drove across. We we didn't fly. Um, I, I think there's a completely different process uh, for flying. Um, the, I, I know uh, Canada offers. Um, uh, it's called ArriveCam is the app that I have. Uh, it's it's an app that you can use uh, whenever you're trying to cross the border. And it kind of gives you uh, the opportunity to uh, put all the information that, that's required of you as far as COVID, vaccination, passport, all that jazz, uh, negative tests even. Uh, so it, it streamlines the process a little bit. Gotcha. Um, but, but even prior to that, uh, driving across the border with a firearm, uh, it was... It was a new experience for me. So we actually had to go to uh, my nearest customs uh, office, which is here in Huntsville, uh, next to the airport. And we had to go get our, uh, our, uh, our I forget what the, what the piece of paper is called, but it's, it's technically a return stamp. Uh, so this piece of paper isn't to get into Canada. It's to bring your firearm back from Canada, back into the States. Hmm. Uh, and then we also had to put, uh, or fill out a uh, a firearm declaration uh, to go into Canada, and you have to put all the details, you know, serial numbers, stuff like that, um, that you that, that can be inspected whenever you do cross the border. Now, how long does that process take? The inspection, or, or you mean crossing the border? No, so like the whole like preparing for uh, getting your firearms. I'm just going to call them certificates. But being able to get your sure. firearms back from Canada into the United States. So, again, with like everything with COVID, some of the processes that are going in, whether it's through state agencies or federal agencies, take a little bit longer because of the workforce being so low. Was that sure. a, a pretty streamlined process for you? Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you, to be honest, and my, this is something my father-in-law said, too. He said uh, that. Typically, when they cross the border, you know, it takes them an hour or two, depending on if they get chosen to 
you know, inspect the contents of the vehicle, check the firearms, make sure they match the certificates. It's, it's all up to them, um, their decision whether or not they decide to do that. Uh, but they actually didn't stop us to check. Um, uh, so, and, and there are also typically, he said, there's a lot of people that work across the border, but when we crossed, man, there wasn't a soul there. We really? were all alone. Yeah, it was actually a, a, what what I'd heard the process was going to be, you know, an hour, two hours, but maybe took 20 minutes. Wow. Uh, the the only curveball that was thrown our way is we had, a, there were four guys in total, and when we crossed the border, they randomly selected one of the persons to take another COVID test uh, that they had to actually um, do online over video call uh, with a um, with a doctor uh, to observe the administration of the test uh, and um, the I, I guess the Canadian government actually came and picked up the test from where we were staying. Wow. Now where where we were at, we tried to communicate. You know. One, we don't know if we're going to have service to even be able to do this. Luckily, the, the, the outfitter we were staying with, they, you know, they had Wi-Fi and I, I brought my laptop just by chance because of school and that's what was used to do the video call. But if I hadn't had my computer, I don't know what we would have done, what he would have done. Um, and, uh, we try to communicate, you know, we're, we're going out in the middle of nowhere. Are you sure you guys are going to drive eight hours, you know, to come get this? Oh yeah, sure. Yeah. We'll come get it. And they, I think they ended up coming to get it, but I think we had left by that time. I think there were, we were, they told us they were coming to pick it up at a specific time and then they had to push that time out and push that time out. I don't know if that was because of, like you said, resources or people that were uh, available to do it. I don't, I don't, you know, I'm not familiar with their workforce right now, but, uh, yeah, that was definitely an extra step that we, we weren't expecting, uh, that was, I guess, a little more stringent. Yeah, without a doubt, without a doubt. All right, so uh, you get across the border and you're working your way up to uh, the outfitter. Uh, kind of paint a picture of uh, what your expectations were. I know that, like, traditionally, I'm sure we've all seen him, uh, like the old Jim Shockey Saskatchewan hunts because he's from up that way. Uh, yeah. You see just those giant, giant body bucks with those chocolate racks. <laughs> Is that kind yeah. of like the same thing that like you were expecting? Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, you know, I'd watch videos and asked a million questions about it. And, you know, it just doesn't do it justice for actually seeing it in person. And especially, I mean, it was a it, it was a big, big change for me because, I mean, I've hunted Alabama my entire life and very used to the deer down here. And uh, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Bergman's rule, but that's the rule that, you know, mm-hmm. it's a, a biological rule talking about um Animals body mass, BMI, uh, body mass index, uh, in colder areas or, you know, the farther north you go, latitude and stuff like that. And man, was it true. I, I, I remember seeing the first, when we first hit the provincial forest, um, we were driving through it. There's a, a road that goes through it and I'm not sure which part it was. We were just trying to get to the, the outfitter. Uh, but there were deer, there were deer everywhere. I mean, they were feeding on the side of the, on the highway, they were crossing the highway. There was just an incredible population and just seeing those deer driving by for the first time and they're as big as your truck. <laughs> you know, just regular old deer does all around little, little bucks and stuff like that. Um, it, it was definitely shocking. That's crazy. So what did, uh, 
what did kind of the the habitat and terrain look like? Yeah, that's uh, I, I was curious about that too. So uh, it, it was interesting. So it, it was mainly timber. Uh, there were some. There were a lot of lakes uh, around the area. Little ponds, I guess. I mean, I don't know the differentiation between them, but little bodies of water, uh, and then and then pretty much timber. There were some uh, gullies on some clearings, natural clearings, I guess I would call them. Uh, you know, they, I don't think they had been uh, logged or anything like that. But uh, the the timber itself is was a lot different than here in Alabama too. You know, the mature timber up there, the size is a lot smaller uh, as far as the, the the tree size. Uh, that's one thing that I definitely noticed. Uh, and we actually drove by a, a piece of clear cut, uh, or, or a piece of land that had been hard, uh, logged. And, um, somebody asked, or I don't remember how, how the conversation came about, but you know, these trees that here would look like they had been, uh, logged two or three years ago. They said it had been eight or nine years. Uh, since those trees have been logged, it just takes so so much longer, and they're a, a little less, uh, uh, just lesser in size than uh, the timber that I'm used to down here. Now uh, they're ma- mainly poplars and spruces and stuff like that. You know, gotcha, so gotcha. less diverse than, than what we have down here. Now is is the the lack of growth and tree size? Is that due to being farther away from the equator and less sunlight during the day? Uh, I believe so. Uh, temperatures, I'm sure, is a big factor. Right. Uh, that, Their growing you know, season specific, is much shorter. Right, right. Yeah, and I'm sure that the specific types of trees that can even grow in that environment, you know, probably have a, a limitation on size and stuff like that. And um, th- this was a provincial forest, uh, so this was not a park. And the differentiation between that is provincial forest can be, uh, you can, it's less protected than a park is, uh, for Canada. Um, and a provincial forest, uh, logging companies can actually, uh, purchase or lease the land from the government to log. I'm not exactly sure how that process works, but I thought that was, you know, different than, than how our, um, you know, wildlife management areas are here, at least in Alabama and how protected they are you know there's not a lot of vehicle access uh off of uh, access roads and stuff like that whereas there you know you can take four wheelers and stuff like that uh, across the land where you can get you know uh, in those parks or excuse me the, the provincial forests. now those those provincial forests how how big of a tracks are they like if you had to put them in acreage <laughs> size so yeah, I asked that. That was one of my first questions. I you know, I was kind of wondering what what's this piece of property that or, or area that we'll be hunting, and uh, so how it works uh, up there is in the provincial forest, which is my I mean just miles and miles of land. Uh, <clears throat> uh, different outfitters are allotted specific zones uh, where they have the hunting and trapping rights, and the, and the differentiation between that. Is hunting is big game and trapping is stuff like, uh, beavers, uh, coyotes, wolves, um, things like that. So and you might get into a situation where someone has the hunting, but not the trapping rights. Um, anyway, uh, I was, you know, expecting maybe a couple thousand acres, but they actually measured it and I think it was a 40 mile by 20 mile track. 
and just hearing it in terms of miles versus acres, you know, just put it into perspective of how much more land uh, they had up there. Yeah, I actually forgot. It's funny. So when you do start getting into those big timber stuff, like Upper Saskatchewan, British Columbia, the Yukon, <clears throat> uh, Alaska, mm-hmm. everything is mild in, or measured in miles, square miles, and then uh, it's really gridded off. Like, did you yeah. notice that? Um, I I don't know if I didn't just because I was so new to the area. Uh and stuff like that but i mean as far as where the outfitter knew you know his his zone and his territory he i mean like the back of his hand i mean it was very apparent and evident to them i couldn't pick up any on anything on uh, any natural uh borders anything like that down here you know you have a track and typically your line is, is an uncut uh tree line so you can always tell those trees are super you know they're much more mature than the surrounding uh trees along uh, within the boundaries mm-hmm. uh, i didn't see anything like that there gotcha yeah that that is uh that is one of the unique things how they can know their piece so well inside and out now how long has that outfitter been been around so uh i don't know how long they were in uh, uh they they've had the the hunting and trapping rights in total. I know my father-in-law had been hunting with the, uh, it's a, it's a family operation. So, uh, this outfitter, uh, it's called, uh, Big Valley Outfitters. Um, uh, they are a, a, a family and, uh, I believe the, the father had, uh, the hunting and trapping rights for his entire, or at least however long he was running the outfitting. Uh, and he actually passed away, uh, last year. Uh, I don't believe it was due to COVID. I think he had just gone up, gotten up in age. Uh, and so this was the first year that my father-in-law went up there with him not being there, but it had been passed down to uh, his family. And so we stayed at their house. Uh, you know, they farm uh, in, the, in the summers and stuff like that. And so this is kind of their, you know, off-season operation and what they get to do. So uh, uh, it gotcha. wasn't a very wasn't a very commercial, you know, it was a very, like, if you're going to a hunting cabin kind of experience, you know, something you might hunt with your buddies or like, like what we do, you know, we have a, a, a spot that was, we've had since my great grandfather and, you know, we still stay in the house that my great grandfather lived in. So it was a very homey, you know, personal experience. It wasn't very commercial like uh, some outfitters uh, might be, which that was the only one I've been on. I, I wouldn't know what anything else is like. Uh, but, it, it was, it was, uh, so th- this was the first year that, uh, the, the younger generation has had the trapping and, and hunting rights, but it had been in their family for a, a very long time. And just your father alone has been gone for 30 years, correct? Right. Exactly. Yeah. So, so quite a bit of time. Yep. So that's good. That's good. Um, now we're getting a little bit, uh, better understanding of kind of like the, the layout and, that it's not necessarily so much a, a commercial outfitting as one might imagine, but more so uh, like a, more of a mom and pop guided. You yeah. stay at the, the farmhouse. Uh, you're a part of the yeah. family type of deal. That's cool. That's really cool. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it was. It so, was. And they cook for you, too. And it's just like having a home-cooked meal, you know. Uh, we went and hunted all day, uh, but they'd fix soup for us for thermoses. And uh, 
Yeah, it was really homey. It was it was awesome. Yeah. So let's let's start down the the hunting process. Uh, the the hunting experience. Uh, again, kind of paint the picture of what your expectations were, and then take us down potentially what reality was. Yeah. Uh, so, um, expectations wise, I really didn't have anything. Uh, that I was expecting to see as far as how the deer, you know, the, I guess the terrain or the, the food sources or the travel route that the deer were going to have up there. It was just a big question mark for me as opposed to, you know, down here you have green fields and uh, travel corridors and stuff like that. Um, so, uh, but when we got up there, um, what, what they have is, uh, it, it was all kind of based around uh, the natural terrain. You know, they didn't pick a spot and say, okay, I'm going to put a spot right here. Uh, and there there weren't any green fields or, or plots uh, that they, they use up there. They just pick a natural uh, space, whether, you know, I hunted over a gully one time. I hunted in some uh, more open timber next to a lake one time. Um and I hunted uh, in a couple different spots like that, but it, it was very uh, natural setups, uh, not something that you uh, might do if you own it at home. Um, and uh, the the travel and the way the deer typically come came in, at least for me, uh, they're they're allowed to to bait up there, um, and uh, what they used for bait, you know, down here everybody has corn or, or whatever, but I, they used hay up there um and uh it, it's very regulated uh what they're allowed to do they have a specific uh amount uh a weight limit on the amount of uh baiting they can do every day um it, it's it's very controlled and it's not just willy-nilly you know you dump a barrel of corn or something like that and uh i would assume that's I'll, because that could potentially be dangerous if you are dumping out a lot of hay or bait or whatever and the the local population the local herd ends up becoming dependent oh, yeah. upon that and then you get a really bad snowfall and basically those deer end up starving yeah yeah that's that's a that's a very good point and actually baiting here in Alabama became legal um this is the second year uh that baiting has been legal and it has completely changed, uh, you know, herds and typical patterns and movements. Um, it, it's it's definitely had an effect on the deer health as well. Uh, there, there's some uh, diseases going around right now here in Alabama uh, that have impacted the population. Um, I don't know how bad uh, or anything like that, but it, it's definitely a factor and something that's very much to your point. But uh, anyway, about uh, so I thought that was interesting that they the, the type of baiting they used and how controlled it was. Uh, but you know, it's it's starting uh, from what I've heard. We went the first week that this outfitter uh, starts taking uh, hunters. It wasn't uh, the beginning of their season, uh, but it was starting to cool down. So everything starts changing. Uh, all the leaves are already off. By this point, and then the, but then the temperatures start dropping really bad. And what uh, what time frame really, is this? Because I don't think we put a time frame on it yet. Yeah, uh, it was the um, the last weekend, uh, last week of October that ran into the beginning of November. Okay. Yeah. 
So that week of uh, Halloween into the first week of November. Yeah. Got yeah. it. And uh, so, but apparently when we were up there, it, was a, it had been very mild so far. The weather hadn't turned or temperatures dropped uh, really low yet. I think it was around 28 or, or 26 or something like that, uh, which was very mild for them, but was very cold for me. <laughs> Uh, I hate to see it when it gets down below, you know, zero up there, but, uh, apparently it gets really bad. And so these deer were very, very focused on feeding as much and as frequently as they could. And you could tell that. And, uh, my first sit, uh, I had a, a little buck come in first, uh, and then a doe, uh, came in behind him and he ran that doe off like, you know, like nothing else. He, they are very, very territorial over that food when it was on the ground. And it wasn't, uh, you know, a social, you know, runoff. I only be by myself. They were very, very focused on feeding. So I find that interesting. And, uh, I guess like, okay, for example, here in Pennsylvania, uh, that time frame that's when you're going to see a lot of pre-rut activity and actually a, a lot less feeding activity where potentially down by you, you're probably still in your just regular fall patterns where, where deer are on their fall movement and maybe in another month and a half, you're going to start getting there. Yeah. 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 And I, I believe up there, that was also the pre-rut time. I don't, I don't believe that they had seen it. You know, there, there weren't uh, bucks regularly chasing those around. Gotcha. Uh, okay. Um, so, uh, yeah, for us down here, uh, in North Alabama, you know, it, it comes in, it'll be here about the week of Christmas. Uh, so we have, uh, pretty much have the pre-rut going on right now. And then, uh, our other spot in, around Livingston, that, that rut doesn't happen until January, uh, sometimes Jeez. late January. That's so wild. Yeah. All right. So they're, they're, uh, they're extremely territorial of uh, kind of the food sources, and they're concentrating on that. So you had a, a, a younger buck work in that ran off a doe. Um, how many other deer were yeah. coming into uh, your your stand locations? Um, I so <clears throat> I had actually tagged out by uh, day three. We had planned to go <clears throat> up to. Um, I believe it was five or I think it might have been six days in total if we needed it. Um, but I had tagged out by the third day, but I, I, you know, I still went and, uh, saw deer and we, we drove around and sat in spots and watched deer activity even after we tagged out. Um, we, we were there in the total for, I think, the, the full six days. We only had one person not tag out, but, um, I would probably see, uh, anywhere from eight to 10 deer a day. Um, it would, it would still, uh, be, you know, your typical morning, evening times. Uh, sometimes you'd catch a, a deer roaming throughout the middle of the day. Um, it, it was very, um, you know, it, it wasn't too, too regular. Um, uh, but, uh, any deer that came in, uh, with, with other deer, uh, there were, there were fights that, you know, broke out that after, that buck ran off that doe. Uh, the buck uh, continued to run off. I don't know where he went or what he was doing, but um, uh, the doe came back 
and uh, with another doe. And so there were two doe feeding and then a much, much larger doe came in and just about beat the other two off with a stick. <laughs> That's crazy. And, uh, yeah, it was. And, and it was funny that they, uh, they would, uh, you know, stand up on their, on their hind legs. Uh, but you could tell the bigger one was, was going to have it and there wasn't going to be anything about it. But those other two deer, uh, they just hung around, uh, on the edge, uh, just standing there roaming around in little spots and just waiting, waiting their turn, mm-hmm. uh, for the other deer to finish feeding. So, and, and again, I guess this is solely based upon habitat or not habitat, but basically, uh, regionality where resources are so, uh, thin that you get that huge competition um just like where people complain that they don't have a rut because their doe and buck pop or ratio is out of whack where you go out in the midwest it's a lot closer to a one-to-one or a two-to-one and you have some really really um hardcore rutting activity where you were at it's actually the opposite where you have deer literally fighting over resources food yeah. not necessarily like yeah. the sexual resources the the reproductive resources yeah yeah exactly um yeah it was it, uh one of the the outfitter um the guy the, his name was brock uh he made a comment one time he, he we saw a deer driving down the road uh one time i don't remember where we were headed but he was talking about how skinny the deer looked and he's he made a comment and he said oh yeah that deer's not gonna make it for next year uh because it didn't have enough meat on it, you know, it hadn't, it wasn't big enough for, uh, to, to survive their winters that they have up there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I know um, that they get I, some pretty heavy snowpack up there too. Oh yeah, they definitely do. That, that was another thing too. I, that, that was one expectation that I did have that I did not get. Uh, when we first got up there, there was no snow on the ground. We didn't see a, a lick of snow all the way up on the drive up. Um, wow. And then it, it actually, it did end up snowing on us just a little bit, uh, when we did get up there. Uh, but, uh, not, not what I was expecting. And they, and they said typically too, you know, they have a, a foot or two feet on the, uh, two foot of snow on the ground by then. Uh, so you mentioned, and I, I want to kind of rewind here a little bit, um, before we go forward. And you mentioned, uh, that, you guys weren't necessarily the first people that they brought into uh their camp did did your outfitter say anything did brock say anything about potentially how slow it was because of covid and and the recruitment of hunters into into his camp or was it not like that was it actually a lot of hunters because so many people couldn't get in the last two years uh, no. So we, we actually were the first ones that, that they, uh, had for the season. Uh, they had uh, a couple more groups lined up, I believe after us, but I asked him about this too. I said, you know, how many, how many groups of people do you usually bring in a, a year? And they, they usually bring them in, uh, for, uh, six or eight weeks. Um, I think he said is their run, which is about the middle of their season. Uh, they don't go until the very end and they don't start at the very beginning. It's right in the middle of it. Um, and they typically only bring about three or four guys. And oh, wow. They, they like, they like the small operation. They like mm-hmm. the low numbers. They feel like everyone gets a really good experience. And I can attest to that. It was a, an awesome experience. I couldn't, have, I wouldn't have known what it was like to have more people, 
Uh, um, and they said it's it's right there in their wheelhouse. But he did say that, you know, they had several, several. Uh, I, I asked him how many people did they have lined up this year? And I think he said they only had. Uh, um, I don't remember exactly, but I, I think it was in the ballpark of like three to four. There's only three, four groups. Wow. And they might go up to, they might take eight or something like that a year. Uh, so the activity uh, after COVID had been way down. Uh, you know, they were looking, uh, they, you know, they were, they were ready to get the word out, uh, that they had opportunities and the deer hunting's great, which it is. And, um, you know, I, I think that impacted the, uh, their outfitting. Well, basically from what I've been hearing, like, nothing has been good as far as like the outdoor recreation uh and especially the hunting situation that's going on in canada right now now from what i've heard most outfitters uh are getting so much blowback they they can't even get clients into camp whereas with Hmm. your situation it sound it sounded like you had a really good situation where you were able to get so for example brian halchek uh one of the uh, members of Serviceide, he's been trying to get mm-hmm. up to uh, Newfoundland to hunt moose, and it's been canceled and on him two years in a row because right, right, that outfitting company can't get their uh, their clearances for for clients in. Right, right. So I will I will say about these outfitters, uh, uh, they were uh, the the guy who had it, uh, you know, throughout the duration of my father-in-law going, but they're very old school they're very traditional no facebook no nothing like that so this year was the very first year that they ever had an instagram that was done by brock and uh this is also the first year as i understood it first year they ever had a couple of cameras out on on the property <laughs> uh and have had this operation for forever so all of their business prior has been word of mouth um uh, stuff like that but you know now they're i think they're going to try and spread some news with the Instagram and try and bring a little bit more business in. But if anybody's looking to go to Saskatchewan, I'd, I'd highly recommend it to use big Valley outfitters. Uh, you, you won't regret it. Yeah. We'll put, we'll make sure we uh, put some of their information in the show notes, but I want to talk about uh, your experience. So you shot a slob uh, and, and you got <laughs> it on film. So yeah. we'll have that linked in the show notes as well for any of the, the audience that wants to view that hunt to uh to ben's uh youtube channel but kind of just don't don't tell the entire story of paint, paint the picture of 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 that experience yeah well uh you know the whole experience from just first driving up it was just one shock after another from deer size to deer population and density and uh activity uh and i i actually you know when this uh, but finally came up. I was shocked at the size of it because I had seen all these big deer, uh, and the size of this deer was just so much larger than the others that were already breaking, uh, you know, record books for me that I've seen. Um, and I had seen several bucks uh, prior to that, but they looked about, you know, there wasn't too big, a, you know, differentiation between body sizes. They were, they were relative. Or I'm sorry, the body sizes of the Canadian deer, you know, were much, much bigger. But the racks, you know, were uh, there wasn't too, you know, anything too jaw dropping uh, until this buck uh, showed up, and um, that was another question too. You know, I'm I'm used to the deer down here, and 
I asked, you know, how do you know what to shoot her up here? I mean, everything's so dang big. Uh, and all they said was, you know, you'll know. <laughs> no, no more information. You, whenever you see that deer and you go for your rifle first thing, you only have to think about it. That's, that's how you know, and that's exactly what happened. Yeah, so uh, I don't think Ben's necessarily doing it justice. You, got, you, you definitely have to watch the video. But when I saw that, when you were behind that deer and then like you could see you and then the actual size of the deer, <laughs> like I was just like, holy shit, that thing is huge. So did you end up getting a, uh, a field dress weight or anything like that? No, no, I never did. And that's, that's the biggest question I've gotten on that deer. And I wish I would have, uh, but I will tell you this. So uh, Brock has a... a a four-wheeler that he built a custom rack on the back for, but he also has a sled. Uh, the, there was snow on the ground at that point, so he had a sled with him in case uh, somebody killed a deer. Uh, and he he built a little, uh, it's a it's a fishing, uh, ice fishing cabin on sleds that he uh, rolled out there so he could sit in, in there with the wood stove uh, while we were out hunting all day. Uh, and this is, so we're out in the middle of nowhere, I guess, backstory we're out in the middle of nowhere and we still have to drive an hour and a half uh on you know in a, in a truck with a, a big trailer and four-wheelers on it and then we get off the truck and we have a 20-minute four-wheeler ride and you get off the four-wheeler and you got a 20-minute walk so i mean we are out there um but uh so what we had to do to get that deer it was too big for the sled so he actually took his four-wheeler and put it up next to a tree and he winched it to where it was standing straight up uh, only two wheels on the ground, and I'm, I mean, like he, wow. he stood it straight up. And so, me and him got on both sides of the deer, and it took everything we had. And Brock was a, I mean, as a strong guy, he's a big, strong guy. I mean, I'm, I'm skinny, but uh, I, I'm not that weak. I don't think. No, I don't think <laughs> I'm that weak. But, uh, but it took everything we had just to drag that deer up and to get one end of it off the <laughs> ground so we could ratchet strap it to his rack. And then uh, we had to ratchet to the rack to pull the four-wheeler back uh, when we were taking the winch down to let it come back down on all four wheels. I cannot believe I didn't weigh that deer or take a picture of how we had to load that deer, but it was it was an experience. It's, it's definitely been a story. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just looking at the video, I would say that that deer had to be well over 300 pounds. I would agree. Uh, I, if I had to, if I had to guess, I would guess in three thirty to three forty uh, before being field dressed. I think it would might have been, I don't know, three hundred, two eighty, somewhere in there mm. after being field dressed. Yeah. But uh, it was a hoss. Yeah. I mean, yes, it was. It's, it's one thing to see a big deer and know how much bigger it is than, than the deer you're used to, but it's another thing to walk up on one. So what was that like? What was that like when you actually, uh, like, you shot the deer and you're walking up on it and, like, obviously there's no ground shrinkage there from when you were in your stand to the recovery. Right. Um, so uh, it's funny. I don't know if you, you probably can't tell in the video, but there happened to be a limb. Uh, hanging uh, from where I was sitting. Uh, I was sitting in a, in a in a platform, a metal platform, and uh, they're they're not 
permanent structures. Everything that they put up uh, every year has to be taken down by the end of the season. Nothing can stay that they put in there. Um, so uh, I was in this platform and there was a, a limb hanging about the in the middle of the distance between me and the deer. And I had to lean over to try and get out of the way of that deer or the limb. And I was kind of worried because I, uh, you know, he'd been standing behind a tree and I was waiting for him to get broadside and get out from uh, the tree he was behind and me around the limb I was trying to get around. And so I was a little worried about the shot because I, I took it uh, a lot quicker than I would have liked to. But I actually went back and watched the film that I had taken to make sure I had made a good shot before I got down on the ground. Uh, but after I did that, I, you know, I wasn't too worried after that. Uh, I knew I'd made a good shot and, uh, but getting on the ground finally, I still waited probably 20 minutes, but being able to track a deer through the snow and follow a blood trail through the snow was, was super fun to do. Uh, it was very different. You, you could see how it, it almost is a mist, uh, against the snow, which is something, you know, we never see. You find drop. That's it. That's all you can, can make out. But, um, you know, walking through walking through the, the bush, as they call it, uh, around trees and, and through some um, uh, some foliage, uh, following that misty blood trail, it, it was awesome. And then finally walking up on him, he actually there was happened to be a, a blown down tree in front of him, so I had to look over that to finally see him. And I, <laughs> I'm telling you, man, I just looked like a horse. I was like, oh, <laughs> couldn't believe how big it was. I don't even remember what I said or uh, on video or anything like that, but I, all I can remember is that you could put a saddle on it yeah. and ride it around. It was without a doubt a tank. Well, Ben, we're working on an hour here. Uh, what What is something that you would recommend uh, to potentially somebody considering wanting to travel into Canada to, to hunt whitetails? Um Obviously, you had a really good experience with your, your outfitter, and you would highly recommend them. Uh, but what's something else, whether it's like maybe upsizing caliber, um, maybe uh, making sure that they take care of their their uh, the the business of the cert certificates for getting across the border, um, that whole deal, that whole mess there, making sure that all that stuff's taken care of, so that they can have smooth transition whatever you think that you would recommend. Yeah. Um, I would say do it, you know, what works for you, uh, what you're comfortable with doing. You know, we stayed at with the outfitter. I'm sure there's other outfitters that you can probably stay in a hotel with. Uh, I would say do the research, uh, try and find whoever's out there and, and find whatever uh, experience you think you'd like to have. I, I believe there's several other, I loved mine. I'd recommend, recommend mine to anybody. Uh, as far as caliber size, um, you know, I, I took my 270 that I've, I've been hunting with. Uh, I, I wasn't able to take my new, uh, gun that I got. Uh, it didn't fit their regulations. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's been my dad's, my dad's 270 that he, uh, let me hunt with, uh, since I was a kid. He got that when he graduated high school in, uh, 76. Uh, wow, so I got that's the same awesome. scope and the same rifle, uh, that he's had. And it's a Remington 700-270. Um, I'd say I'd worry more about the shot and the caliber. Um, you know, they all pack a punch. Uh, maybe, maybe don't go up there with a 22 long rifle. Uh, um, but yeah, um, 
do, do what works for you as far as crossing the border and especially with COVID. That's the only thing I would say is be very, very diligent about, you know, researching everything that you're going to have to have, uh, documents, uh, getting back into the country, whether uh, it is, you know, you're flying or you're driving. Um, there's a lot of different things and also the regulations on uh, what Canada allows as far as firearms going across the border. Uh, they have very stringent regulations uh, as far as barrel so uh, barrel length, excuse me, um, folding stocks, uh, receiver styles. Um, I, I would do the homework on that. Uh, there's a lot of information out there. It's not hard to find. Uh, and then make sure you're vaccinated and stay away from anybody who gets sick a lot uh, before you trip. That's good advice. All right, Ben. So uh, where can the audience watch? your uh your video your hunt and then um do you want to throw your social media out as uh for where they can follow your adventures because i know that you've got a lot going on with within your own uh social media and youtube channel and you got a lot uh, a lot of content there yeah um so i just started filming like uh in the middle of last year so i guess about this time i've only been doing about doing it about a year <clears throat> Uh, my YouTube is Yellowhammer Outdoors. Uh, you can Google that. I've only got a couple of videos. Uh, my Instagram is uh, Papa Roads two five six. If you want to check out any hunting, uh, turkey hunting, deer, or, or uh, wild hogs, uh, you can give me a look. Um, I'd also take a look at Big Valley. Uh, they're also on on Instagram. Uh, it's uh, Big uh, Big Valley Outfitters uh, on Instagram, and the profile should be Brock Nora. Uh, if you want to get in touch with them uh, or me, I can point you in the right direction. All right. I'll make sure that I have all those links in the show notes for anybody that wants to check them out. Thank you so much for hopping on the podcast, Ben. I really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Enjoy talking with you, Torn. Yep. Thank you, everybody, for listening in to the Whitetail Theories podcast. <laughs>